If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie show where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. A professional investor and one of the original Fast Money Five on CNBC's Fast Money, Guy Dammy is a native of Croton-on-Hudson in New York. After graduating from Georgetown University in 1986, he started a career on Wall Street. In the process of collecting his oral history, we learn about family, gender, class, ethnicity, sports, schools, educators, recruiting, guidance counselors, school selection, transitions, Wall Street in the 1980s, the power of choice, taking educated risk, and why Guy Danny views humility as a superpower. That's today on the Fred Opie Show. Guy Adami. Guy, what is the oldest thing you know about either side of your family history? So that's a great question. The, the, the oldest thing that, that I have sort of access to was my grandfather, my mom's father. He was part of Mussolini's private army, as crazy as that sounds. And I know it sounds somewhat far-fetched, but we actually have a picture of him with about 50 to 60 other soldiers all sort of circling around Benito Mussolini to the point where when he came to this country, he was followed around by the FBI. In terms of what I know, that's the oldest thing I remember, and people find it somewhat interesting. Where did your mom and dad grow up? My mom actually did grow up in Croton on the Hudson on Cedar Lane, so she's, she's you know, one of the original members of you know, that community in terms of the families that we know. My father grew up in the Bronx. So my dad grew up on Webster Avenue in the Bronx. He went to Fordham Prep, Fordham U, and Fordham Law School. And my mom and dad actually met in the first day of law school in 1960 at Fordham Law School. So that's where they grew up, and that's where they met. And they moved to Croton, I would say, within a year after having me. And my original place of birth was Phelps, as you know, in North Terrytown. I was a baby in the Bronx, but we moved up to Croton, and we were members of the community for a very long time. My mother was Nancy Loretta Coppola. They didn't live far from the Croton River, so obviously we all as kids went there, but I had affinity towards it because my grandmother and grandfather lived literally right, right around the block from where a lot of people would go spend time on the river. You know, when there was still... Uh, physicians that went to, you know, the family doctors that made house calls. My uncle was Dr. Samison. He was married to my grandmother's sister. What was your favorite number and why that number? My favorite number growing up was 82. That was the number I wore in football. And I wore it because a guy named Frank Bruno wore it. And Frank was a high school All-American at Croton during a time when Croton football, believe it or not, was probably one of the best teams in the state in New York. He went on to play at Harvard. And when I saw him play, you know, and the fellow Italian guy, I'm like, well, if I'm fortunate enough to play football, that's the number I'm going to wear. That was the heyday of Croton football. I remember going to see 
all these undefeated teams. And throughout those teams, there were just family names. Cassidy's, but then you talk about Bowersfelds and Vastas and Potass. I mean, the names go on and on. Croton's one of those towns where very deep-rooted families for decades and generations. I think that's what made it so special. So you were watching guys play football, and you know where they came from. You know what streets they lived on. It was a very special place in a very special time. The Moore family, uh, Mr. Moore running that whole flag football program that became a feeder program for the high school football program. It was fun for us, but what we were learning, we were learning how to play football. Now, look, I'm not going to say that flag football was, you know, an elite league by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but we learned how to line up. We learned the different positions. We learned the game of football at a very young age, and Mr. Moore made it his passion to really make that league a viable league. And it was just kids from town, but there were probably six different teams. You knew the other guys on the team. You all grew up together. And it was, it was a pretty competitive league. And then you go from playing flag football to playing CYO basketball for the church. And Mr. Moore had his hands in that as well. And when I say that, I say that lovingly. I mean, he was dedicated to the athletics of that town. And he obviously had boys that played sports at a very high level. But, you know, Mr. Moore, in a lot of ways, was a father figure to a lot of us who had very strong father figures. And another little-known fact, not to bore you, but, you know, he also grew up in the Bronx, Hmm. and he knew and grew up with my father's sister in the Bronx. Hmm. Crazy story. So, again, you know, a lot of people from the Bronx made their way up to Croton. As big the world is, it's not as big as people think. Most memorable or best teachers and coaches Yeah, I think that's a great question. So in terms of teachers, Moses Godfrey was the music teacher there. And to say that he had an impact on my life is an understatement. And I'm not saying I was some great musician. That's not the point. He actually was a great musician that played with some of the best musicians in in the world. And we were fortunate enough in, in our community to have him as our music teacher. And, you know, I'd learned about music, but I learned a lot of life lessons from him as well. So I would say, without a doubt, Moses Godfrey. But in terms of the high school, I think Terry Smith, for me, was somebody that I always looked up to. Now, Terry was the football coach, the head football coach. He ran an incredible program, but he was also the English teacher in the high school. He made English very interesting for me. There was a way that he carried himself. There was a, the, a Bill Belichick quality to him that, you know, obviously before Bill Belichick was a household name. And I'm not comparing him in terms of, you know, acumen, but in just terms of the way he carried himself. And he forced you to be disciplined. And there was a commitment to excellence. In the offseason, you know, he had us come in and take personality tests and all different things that nobody was doing at the time. And there were playbooks that we needed to study. So, you know, he demanded excellence from not only the guys on his varsity team, but on the guys that were coming up the ladder as well. You know, the, the ninth graders, the sophomores. My junior year was the year that Terry Smith left, and a gentleman named Jerry Salisi came in to coach us. You know, this sounds like Bruce Springsteen Glory Day stuff, and I don't want it to sound that way. But what I will tell you is, my junior year, that football team was as talented a group of people that I'd ever been around. And there were probably about 28 of us on the team in high school football back then. 
most guys played both ways. Well, this team was so talented that I think only three guys on the team were playing both ways. We had a defense and we had an offense, and we were loaded. But we also had a coach that was new to the town, and I don't think he realized what he had. So we started the year, I think, 6-0, and and we beat Irvington, which was ranked in the state on a Sunday at Irvington because the Saturday day got rained out from some huge storm that blew through. We were really flying high, and then the next week, we got knocked off by a, a team named Valhalla, a school named Valhalla. But I will tell you that if Terry Smith had been there, I'm convinced that that you know, 1980-81 team would have gone down just like the 70s teams did. That team, your senior class and my junior class, was just loaded with football players. But remember, we're talking about now the early 1980s, before social media, before YouTube, before there were websites like Huddle, before there, you were people taking videos of you and sending them to coaches. Coaches couldn't find you. Now, these days, if you're talented, people will find you, as you know. But back then, that wasn't the case. What kind of student were you and why? I was diligent. I did my work. You know, it was instilled upon us. As I said, you know, my mom and dad met at law school, so education was something that was important to them, so therefore it became important to us. I would say athletics were more important to me in high school, but academics were important as well. I remember taking the SATs on some random Saturday before a football game. I remember having my game pants on, you know, taking a test. So it wasn't something that we were all that focused on. But I would say in terms of a student, um, I tried not to be a distraction. I tried to do my work, and I tried to do as well as I could. So I think I was a, I was a good student, not a great student, in high school at least. Do you think it made a difference that you had two parents that only were college grads but had a graduate degree? 100%. And I don't say that to be a big shot. I say that because I know how fortunate and how blessed I was to have that. So I think, you know, I understood the importance of education, but through the prism that they provided. It's a different town. Croton was a blue-collar, hard-working town where, you know, a lot of people, when they graduated high school, they were going to go on to work for the railroad or they're going to go to work for Con Edison or any number of things that didn't necessarily require college education. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice, Start With Your Gift, on Amazon.com. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show. You ended up going on to Georgetown. Uh, unpack how that decision was made. Yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. And I, you know, I do a little bit of public speaking, and one of the things I talk about is the importance of not letting others define who you are. And one of the stories I tell revolves around college. And, you know, it's 1981. I'm a senior. Your guidance counselor calls you in, and she asked me where, what schools I was applying to, and I rattled off a few, and one of them was Georgetown University. And she looked at me and said, well, you, 
why bother? You're not going to get in. And I sort of looked at her and I said, well, thank you. And I got up and walked out and I, I didn't do that to be a big shot, but in my mind, I'm saying to my, who is she to tell me where I should apply and where I shouldn't apply. So I wanted to go to Georgetown. I knew about it. My, obviously my mom and dad knew about it. It was my mother that really encouraged me to apply. And I think somehow the football coaches, you know, got wind of some of my tapes or somebody said something because, you know, I got a little bit of a nudge from the football coaches there. Like, you know, you should apply. We're looking for players, blah, blah, blah. Now, Georgetown at the time was Division Three. Guys like me could play at a place like that. So I think the football background helped as well. In terms of why, I think it was the encouragement of my parents, specifically my mother, and my reluctance to let somebody define where I was going to go to school. The first time I stepped foot on the campus of Georgetown University was August of 1982, um, literally when football camp started. So I had never seen the school. I didn't really understand logistically where it was in Washington, D.C. I think I visited one school my senior year, and that was Cornell. On a snowy, lousy, miserable day, my father and I went up there. Outside of that, the first time I saw the school was the first day I set foot on campus. So I applied to Georgetown, um, Cornell. Now, this is going to sound crazy, but the University of Houston, because they had a great hotel administration school, I applied to Rice, which is down in Texas as well. University of Virginia, which I got dinged at. Bucknell was a school as well that I applied to a school in, in Pennsylvania. But those sort of were the schools on my radar screen. Say the first time you stepped on campus was for a football camp. So you played your freshman year? My senior in high school, I had a pretty significant shoulder injury my last game against Pleasantville. And it really hampered me. So when I got to school at college, it still wasn't 100%. I dinged it pretty good. And it was one of those things that was so painful that I just decided I couldn't do it anymore. And now, in retrospect, it's one of the worst decisions I ever made. I really wish I stuck with it. But, you know, it's, you know I was 18 years old, college freshman. My shoulder was throbbing. I had to deal with the academics of the school. I went from being, you know, I wouldn't say a big shot, but you go from being a big fish in a very little pond in Croton to being just, you know, another person at Georgetown University. It was, for me, it was a tremendously difficult transition. And I thought at that point, you know, football with the injury, just I wasn't going to be able to do it. In a word, I basically quit the football team, which is one of the great regrets of my life. You didn't do anything in the spring in high school, right? Just basketball and football. No, I'll tell you what we did in the spring, my junior year. So a couple of my buddies and I that didn't do anything in the spring, we used to go and watch your lacrosse games <laughs> up at Croton Point. But lacrosse was a sport that was just beginning to become popular. I knew nothing about it in, in terms of the game. I understood you know, the concepts of it, but in terms of the strategies and how things set up, I really didn't understand it. But we used to go and watch you guys play. The guys that came out of that area at that time were world-class lacrosse players, and it's amazing to think about it. Time, obviously, we didn't know, but in looking back, you know, you had some unbelievable people not only come out of our school, but in the surrounding area as well. 
one of the things we enjoyed doing was we'd go play basketball outside and watch the girls play softball, or we'd go up to Croton Point and watch you guys play lacrosse. Tell me, what was your major at Georgetown, and why did you choose that one? So I was a marketing major. I was in the business school at Georgetown. I was a marketing major, and I chose it because everybody seemed to be a finance major. And I'm like, well, it's going to be hard to differentiate yourself with the rest of the group. So marketing seemed to be pretty interesting. So that's the route I went. Now I'll say I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I figured if everybody's going to be a finance major, maybe I'll try to take a different course of action. So I was a marketing major. Most memorable course you took at Georgetown and or a professor? Yeah, it's another great question. So Georgetown to this day, one of the one of the required classes is a course they call Problem of God, and I'm not going to get into the the reasons why they call it that. But I had a Jesuit that taught that my first semester freshman year, Father Thomas King, and it was one of the most eye opening enlightening classes that I've ever taken, and it turned out to be the one of the first classes I took at school. So I think Problem of God opened my eyes to a lot of different things. And then I took classes in, in sort of my world, you know, accounting, which I had no background in that I found fascinating, some finance classes. But the liberal arts classes are really the things that were life-changing in terms of forcing you to look at the world through sort of a different scope. Did you do any internships while you were at Georgetown? That's another great question. You know, there'll be kids applying for internships two summers from now, Back then, it really wasn't on my radar screen. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I enjoyed working over the summer. Mm -hmm. I did not have any, no. So what was your first job at a Georgetown? And then how did this, these opportunities on Wall Street open up? So my mom and dad were attorneys, and they were representing a gentleman named Dale English. And now this is the the fall of my senior year in college. So Dale had left his firm and was working as a commodities trader at a place called Drexel Burnham Lambert. Drexel Burnham was one of the great Wall Street firms. We were sort of the Oakland Raiders of Wall Street. Everybody hated us, but in a lot of ways, everybody wanted to be like us. We weren't your typical Wall Street firm. So they asked Dale if he would interview me when I was home for Christmas break. And he said, yes. So I remember it was a Monday. I was home for Christmas. I took the subway down to lower Manhattan after taking the train from Croton. And I went down to 60 Broad Street where Drexel headquarters were. And I sat on a desk, got there about 7 a.m. and stayed till about 5 p.m. And on that Monday, nobody not only didn't talk to me, nobody would look at me. And this went on the entire week until Friday came. And some guy came over to me and said a few things that I won't say because proper decorum <laughs> prohibits me. But in a nutshell, he asked, listen, you've been coming all week. You haven't said a word. What's your goal here? What's your game plan? And I said, well, I was hoping to get a job in the spring when I graduate. And he said, well, you really should have said something on Monday. He said, but that's all right. He said, call us when you graduate and you'll start after college is over. And that's how I got my first job at Drexel Burnham. Back then, it was a lot easier getting jobs. It was also a lot easier losing a job. Nowadays, it's sort of reversed. What I'll tell you is I started at Drexel the Monday after I graduated, and I sort of navigated my way through Wall Street. In terms of how I got here, there's a great AIG commercial 
the greatest risk is not taking one. And I'm not suggesting taking risk for the sake of taking risk, but every once in a while you have to take a shot and you have to bet on yourself in life. And one of the big breaks I got was at Drexel Burnham. One of our biggest clients was a gentleman named Sir James Goldsmith. I encourage your listeners and your viewers to sort of Google that name and to look up and see who Sir James was. But he was one of our biggest clients, if not our biggest client. And he had a designated phone line that he would call. So when that phone line rang, you knew it was him. The catch was there was only one person on the desk that was allowed to speak to him. Only one person was allowed to pick up that phone. So on this particular day, the phone rang, but Brad, the gentleman who was allowed to speak to him, was off the desk. So I'm on the desk with multiple, you know, 15, 20 people, all very type A intense individuals, and everybody froze. The phone line's ringing. Brad's not there. What's going to happen? So I made a decision. So I did the calculus in my head and said, well, What's the worst thing that can happen? I'm going to pick up the phone and have a conversation with this guy. So that's what I did. I picked up the phone, and he said, is this Brad? I said, no, Brad's off the desk. This is Guy. How are you, Sir James? And he said, I'm fine. And he asked me a couple questions about the market. But it was clear that he wasn't interested in the market. He had something else on his mind. So we're talking, and he said to me, you know, I'm really troubled my daughter is dating this Pakistani cricket player, and I'm just not happy about it. I, I just don't think he's right for her. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And we had a lovely conversation. So lovely, in fact, that the next time he called, he asked for me. So you mentioned how did you navigate and how did you get to where you are. I mean, that was a great risk that I took, but it wound up being one of the greatest things I ever did because I developed a relationship with this gentleman. Now, fast forward, Sir James passed away, but his daughter, Jemima Goldsmith, wound up marrying this guy, this Pakistani cricket player, who is now the, I don't know if it's the, I don't know what the title is, but he's either the prime minister or the president of Pakistan. And if you look and Google up his name, Aman Khan is his name. He, um, they just had a great Vanity Fair article about him a couple months ago. Fun story. We're going to take a commercial break now, and we'll be right back. Write me to speak, teach, coach, and consult at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. Let's return to the show now to unpack more history to positively impact the future. Why was Drexel Berman like the Raiders? Unpack that a little bit. Wall Street had a lot of staid, very old establishments like Solomon Brothers and Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Drexel Burnham sort of came out of nowhere and became the guys and gals that did all the business that nobody else had the temerity, the courage to do. So we were not looked upon favorably in the Wall Street community, the same way the Raiders are not looked at favorably in the NFL community. They did things differently, and they weren't scared to, the way the Raiders aren't scared to bring on sometimes unsavory characters to their team, the same way that Drexel wasn't scared to hire people that would not typically get a job on Wall Street. The typical Wall Street guy back then, and, and, and back then it was 
Wall Street guy. I mean, I would say for every woman on a trading desk, there were probably, you know, 14 or 15 men. World's changed for the better, mm -hmm. but that's the way it was back then. Most of the time, they were recruited out of high, you know, these high-end Ivy League schools, maybe a handful of other schools like Stanford, MIT, and those types of places, University of Virginia, mm -hmm. you know, those types of places. People with backgrounds that, you know, fathers and grandfathers that had been in the industry, so people that had access to those, those firms. Whereas Drexel said, you know what? We just want to hire the street smart, hungry guys and gals that would sort of, that are going to outfight you. They're going to beat you in a street fight. So that's the difference. That's why Drexel was so interesting. And to be honest with you, that sort of fit my mold because I didn't come from wealth. You know, I didn't come from that type of background. And I was willing to get into the, if you want to get in a street fight, I was absolutely willing to do that. So it sort of fit the way I was sort of wired at the time. What does it mean to sit on a desk? Uh, give, give me a virtual what that means. Back then, it was a long, um, continuous desk with chairs and phone banks. So each phone bank had a trader sitting in front of it. And it was typically 10 to 12 on one side and 10 to 12 on the other side. And you'd be facing each other. Uh, the seats were right next to each other. So I looked to my left and my friend Mark Grummet there, and I look to my right, and my friend Nadav is there, and so on and so forth. So it's close proximity, very loud, aggressive, uh, high-energy environment. If you remember the movie Wall Street, when Bud Fox is sitting on a desk with all the phones and everybody yelling and screaming, mm -hmm. that was a trading desk. You start the job. What's the training to be on a desk? Clearly, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. There's a great line in the movie Wall Street. He wouldn't know preferred stock from livestock. You know, I didn't know a commodity from a condominium. Let's put it that way. You know, you put your head down and you did your thing. And the real key was you tried not to make a spectacle of yourself. You tried to blend in. You tried not to do something so stupid that was going to cost you your job. And you hoped over a period of time it would start to make sense. And that was sort of the learning curve. You just sat there and watched and listened and tried to absorb. And that's how I figured it out. But I will tell you, the first two years of work were, in some ways, some of the best times of my life and in other ways, some of the worst times of my life at the same time. Well, the best part about it was... I was young. I was learning. There was an energy to the trading desk. I had a job. I was with people that I admired in terms of their intellect. Uh, I was working in New York City. I was working basically on Wall Street. I mean, all those things were incredible to me. What, what the worst part about it is we were treated like farm animals. Um, it was in terms of you know, I hate the word pressure because I'm not a big believer of it, but what I'll tell you is it was a pressure-packed environment. It was sink or swim every single day. And I'll tell this one story that I think is interesting. We hired a young woman from Dartmouth, and she was brilliant, and we put her on the trading desk, and a bunch of the higher-ups thought that she'd be great on the desk. And within, I'd say, a couple weeks, it was clear that she just wasn't going to cut it. They had made the decision on this particular Friday they were going to fire her. 
but they wanted to do it after the day was over because a couple of people had called in sick and they needed an able body on the desk. And I said to myself, oh my God, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like they knew she was gone, but they let her work that day. And I know that might not make a lot of sense, but I found it to be so alarming and so jarring. I'm like saying to myself, if that can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. So it was the environment was not for the faint of heart by any stretch. So I'm I'm on the desk. It's my first day picking up the phone. And what am I doing? It doesn't sound like there's a manual or there's a course, job ready course that they're putting you through. What's getting on the desk orientation like? When at what point do they say, okay, you can pick up the phone? Yeah, that's a great question. There was no. You know, to your point, now they have orientations and they have training programs and they're extensive and there's classroom work and there are people that come in and guest speakers and you have lunches with together and it's, it's very formal, it's very proper. Then they just basically say, okay, you're sitting here, don't answer this phone, don't answer that phone, you can answer that line, this is how you answer the phone. If you don't know the answer, get somebody on the phone immediately and just basically watch and don't screw anything up. And that was the training program. Literally, that was the training program. And they were speaking a foreign language. Mm. The, the language, the jargon of a trader is much different than everyday English that we, we try to in, in, invoke. The language then was, was much different. And it was, they might as well have been speaking Chinese because I didn't know what they were talking about barking at each other, yelling at each other, numbers, tickets flying. The entire thing was extraordinarily foreign to me. What the hope was, and, and the calculus that I did in my mind was, I, I'm going to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can. I'm going to try to fly under the radar screens, and I hope that you know, I can outlast everybody else on the desk and figure it out quicker than they can. That's the way I played it. I, I thought that's the way it was. For everyone in every industry, because my age, I didn't know any different. So I thought that was the norm. As it turns out, it was far from the norm. Let me give you an analogy. Go back to Syracuse, get the PhD, and a requirement is to learn two foreign languages because you need them for translating uh, skills. You might be going, in my case, I ended up going to Guatemala, living there for six months and going through archives, and I had to be able to read Spanish, translate Spanish to to write this book. So I had to learn Spanish. How long did it take you to become fluent on the desk? That's a great question. So I started in May. I would say it wasn't until January of the next year, so you know, five, six, seven months later, where I felt as if I actually sort of understood what was going on. So for me, that's how long it took. And I'm sure for other people, it was much quicker, and maybe other people never sort of figured it out. But for me, that's how long it took. And you know, I'll tell you another quick funny story about how just unsavory it was back then. In 1988, I was turning 25. And if memory serves, my birthday was on a Friday. And my birthday's in December. I remember my boss coming up to me at the end of the day. And he rarely talked to me, by the way. So the fact that he came up to me was terrifying. And he said, do you have any plans tonight? And sheepishly, I said to him, well, um yeah, it's my birthday today. Some of my buddies are going to take me out. And again, I'll spare the vernacular, but he said, happy effing birthday, but you have to stay tonight and test the phones. We're changing our phone lines down to the exchange. 
And back then, you had no way to contact your buddies. There was no text messaging and anything. And you know, a bunch of the guys were coming in. You know most of them. And they were going to take me to dinner. So I just didn't show up. And that Friday night on my 25th birthday, I stayed on the desk to about 11 o'clock that night testing the new phone lines down to the uh, New York Mercantile Exchange. But that was a decision that I remember saying to myself, well, if you don't do it, you're not going to have a job on Monday, so you just suck it up and do it. And, and, and I was one of those people, I was willing to make those types of sacrifices. And in athletics, it's the same type of thing. You, you can always identify the guy or gal that will do whatever the coach asks him or her to do. And I was one of those people in athletics, and I still think I'm one of those people professionally. How did you and your parents pay for your Georgetown education? Georgetown at the time, this is 1982, was I think $31,000 a year, which sounds like nothing now, but back then it was a lot of money. My parents paid for some of it, and I took out student loans. And I was paying back student loans until I, I think my late 20s or early 30s, but that's how I paid for it. I would say that I was probably taking out ten dollars to $15,000 a year, so Let's just say, for sake of argument, I had total student loans when I got out somewhere between you know fifty and sixty thousand dollars. Today might not sound like a lot, but it was a lot of money back then. So, guy, did you get to the point on your career, and I imagine even now, where you are hiring people? The short answer is yes. Can one go through the interview process and say, "Oh, this one's going to be good on the desk"? Are there qualities or characteristics that you were looking for when you were hiring people? Great question. I might not be able to tell you that if Fred Opie was going to be a star at Goldman Sachs, but I could absolutely tell people that weren't going to make it. And there are certain things that um, you can identify as reasons why not. I think aggressiveness is viewed, and, and a lot of times in our society, as a bad word, but it's not necessarily a bad word. I think. You have to be aggressive in life, not aggressive in a mean-spirited way, mm -hmm. but aggressive in terms of being an advocate of yourself and pushing for greater things. So I could always sort of see in certain people that either they have that characteristic or they don't. And quite frankly, if they didn't, Wall Street was probably not the best place for him or her. Conversely, Having it doesn't necessarily guarantee success either. But I will tell you, if you don't have it, it's almost a foregone conclusion that you're not going to be successful. What I would be looking for is a guy or gal that was, I know it sounds glib and, and trite, but sitting up in their seat, anxious, eager, attentive, curious, natural curiosity takes you a long way in life. I think the same way it does on an athletic field. You know, you have to have all those characteristics. So, those were the things that I would typically be looking for. We're going to take a commercial break now, and we'll be right back. Our scripture of the day is James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. William Ward said, four steps to achievement, plan purposefully, prepare prayerfully, proceed positively, pursue 
persistently. Oh, I like that. That's William Ward. Let me read that again. Four steps to achievement. Plan purposefully. Prepare prayerfully. Proceed positively. And pursue persistently. Let's return to the show now to unpack more history to positively impact the future. How did the opportunity to audition for Fast Money come about? You know, one of the things I said earlier is the greatest risk is not taking one. You know, every once in a while, you have to, you're going to make a decision that's going to change the course of your life. But this is a good life lesson. I worked at Goldman Sachs for about eight years. And at a certain point, it's pretty clear you're either on the partner track or you're not. And that's not Listen, that's not a negative thing, and it's, it just is what it is. And for me, being self-aware, it was pretty clear that I was not going to be a partner at Goldman Sachs. So I had an opportunity to get a job at a different firm, a Canadian bank headquartered in New York, and I took it. Within a few weeks of me starting there, CNBC came to the trading desk, and they were going to tape and they were going to broadcast from our desk because we were doing something called Charity Day, where our commissions were going to different charities. The problem was nobody wanted to be on TV. So somebody came to me and said, listen, CNBC is here. Would you be willing to speak with them? I said, of course. I said, I'll talk about whatever they want. So I went on air with Bertha Coombs, and we went on Liz Clayman's show, and I did about a minute and a half interview, and it went well. So well, in fact, that Liz Clayman called me the next day and said, listen, we'd love to have you on more frequently. So it was the fact that nobody else wanted to do it. Somebody asked me to do it, and I took the chance, and that's how I wound up on CNBC for the first time. Now, as fate would have it, within a year or so, Jim Cramer's show begins, a show called Mad Money. Mm -hmm. That show just takes off. CNBC now is looking for the next show, and they had an idea for an aftermarket show of traders. What does a trader look like? How do they speak? How do they interact? And they wanted to replicate that dynamic on a television show. So over the course of about four months, they brought in close to 450 people to audition, screen test, talk about a yet-to-be-named show, and I was one of those people, and they selected me. And here, 13 years or so later, here I am. So you were on that show for, I think, the longest of out of any of the people that appeared. How do you explain your longevity? There's a pro and a con. A lot of the guys and gals that have done it have gone on to do other things. I think this is something that's really important. I think the big mistake people make, not only in TV and broadcasting, but in life, is they're always trying to prove to other people how smart they are, how wealthy they are, how well-educated they are, how whatever they are. And I will tell you, nobody really cares. So the best people on TV, in my opinion, are the people that try to make the inaccessible, the arcane, the boring, they can make those things accessible in a fun and interesting way. And I think I have that ability. I've never taken myself that seriously. <laughs> I've never tried to prove how smart I am because I'm not. And I just try to make things fun for people. And I think to that end, that's why I'm still doing it some 13 years later. I think I'm able to synthesize things quicker than a lot of people are, but I also have the ability to make it fun and accessible. So if you ask me why I'm still doing it, why I'm still there, and why I'm the only original one, I think that's the short answer. 
Guy, where does that part of you come from? Humility. Every single one of us, black, white, male, female, straight, gay, we're, we're all the same. We're, we're, no one's more special than anybody else. I'm no, I'm no more important than the, the guys and gals that uh, pick up the garbage on the weekends and, and you name it. We're, we're, we're all the same. We're all equal. And if you look at life through that lens, then it makes it very simple. We all have the same desires. I think we all sort of want the same things, want to be happy, want our family to be safe, want to have a roof over our head. And if you, don't, if you realize that you're no more special than anybody else, I think it makes life really simple. And, and I believe that with, my, with all my heart. What's something that you thought you understood about the entertainment bit, uh, business that, in retrospect, you had it all wrong? <laughs> I think that's a great question. You know, people think it must be so glamorous and you're going to make a ton of money, but the reality is exactly the opposite. I mean, look, I've met some amazing people, and it's obviously afforded me the ability to do a lot of neat things, like this interview, for example, but it's not nearly as glamorous as people might think. And, you know, outside, in a lot of ways, if you think about the NFL, for example, 45 guys on a roster, maybe I'm, I'm missing my numbers, but, you know, you're going to have four or five of those guys that are going to be extraordinarily well paid, and then the rest of the team is not. And it's sort of the same way in, uh, in the media business. You know, and you have a few guys and gals that do extraordinarily well, and then there's everybody else. So if, if, if anybody's out there thinking that everybody on TV is rich, think again. Folks, that is Guy Adami sharing his oral history today on the Fred Opie Show. I just want to say thank you. I learned a lot. People think this is a job. This ain't no job. This is like fun for me to, to learn the backstory. That was really cool. I appreciate you having me on. I really mean that. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show, if you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 